All right, let's take our Bibles. Turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. So we move on, we, we kind of introduced this a few weeks ago, uh, but then business meeting, Thanksgiving, so that was three weeks ago, so now we'll pick up with Jonah chapter 1, perhaps, perhaps a, a bit of a breath of fresh air, so to speak, I, I, I mean, and what I mean by that is Jonah is such a readable and accessible book compared to every other prophet. Major or minor, for that matter, uh, we, we, there's some hard stuff in here, no doubt, uh, but Jonah kind of you know, hits us right, right from, off the bat with something that feels a lot more familiar than Obadiah or Amos or Joel, the other prophets that we've looked at. And so, you know, we find something that maybe, you know, we can discern uh, truth and application from it as, as we read along. Hopefully, you've had a chance over the last few weeks to read through Jonah Only four chapters, so opportunity has been yours. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. And the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lots fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he'd fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, 
Please do not let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. I have a question for you. I hope there'll be someone in here who can answer it. I think there'll be a few. If not, I'm going to call on you by name. Who can tell me, what is Yom Kippur? Day of Atonement. Atonement. All right, very good. And what is that? Michael is quick to answer, so I'm going to pick on you. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. So a big, big part of the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur, at least as the Old Testament prescribes, according to the law, the Day of Atonement, which by the way is considered the holiest day in the Jewish year, even to this day, uh, it ranks above Passover. All right. So Yom Kippur is the high holy day for the Jewish calendar because it was the one day of the year where the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. He would take with him the blood of a sacrificed animal that he would then sprinkle on the Ark of the Covenant. And this then provided then God's Shekinah glory, provided that the glory cloud of God settled upon the, the mercy seat, which was made by the two cherubim and their, how they were built, their wings connecting on top of the Ark of the Covenant, If God accepted their sacrifice, then then all was good. And this was considered then a a sacrifice for the nation. Every year they had to do this. This was also the time of year where they did the scapegoat. You familiar with that term, scapegoat? Well, that comes from Old Testament law, the Day of Atonement. So there were two goats. One was sacrificed and used in the tabernacle uh, rituals. The other scapegoat, the high priest, would lay his hands upon it to ceremonially transfer all of the sins of the people onto the goat, and then the goat was sent out into the desert to die. Once again, symbolizing then this this national atonement, this work of redemption. And of course, the Day of Atonement was a big deal because it represented this moment uh, where, where God was Uh, extending forgiveness based on the death of an animal. So it was a substitutionary kind of atonement, right? Where where rather than there being all these other rituals that they engaged in, instead, uh, this was the time where the nation received forgiveness because of this sacrificial work that God allowed. Now, you might wonder, all right, Pastor, why are you bringing all of this up as it pertains to, to Jonah. Say, I, I don't remember reading anything about the Day of Atonement. Well, it's because of this. And now you'll know the answer because I've given it away a little bit. Eventually, tradition developed that on the Day of Atonement, 
along with all the other things they may do, to this very day. Now, today, modern Jews cannot practice the Day of Atonement as it was prescribed in the law, because there is no temple with a holy of holies and an Ark of the Covenant. So they can't do this, but they do still recognize the day. On that day, they also read an entire book of the Bible. And guess which book it is? Jonah! Weird, right? In other words, if I were to start out the sermon by saying, on the Day of the Atonement, you know, that there, there's one book that they read every year, would you necessarily think, oh, Jonah? Yeah, I mean, I read Jonah, I think, yeah, that's got atonement written all over it. I mean, I read Jonah, and yeah, that's exactly what I think of. So it's fascinating that even today, they read this book. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why they do this. And Jewish teachers don't have a clear, definitive answer for it. They don't know exactly when the tradition started, other than it's been going on for centuries. Some suggest that Jonah is read because it is a book that illustrates God's sovereignty and speaks to God's right to judge both His people and the nations. All right, yeah, that's part of it. That's certainly in the book, and there's no doubt that's an important theme. I'm inclined, though, to to take the track that some other Jewish teachers have taken and suggest that the reason why Jonah is read on the Day of Atonement is because Jonah is a book at the end of the day that is about God's mercy. In fact, it's an unusual book compared to what we've read in the rest of the Minor Prophets where God's mercy, and not just God's mercy, but God's mercy for the most wicked of people, the Ninevites, the Assyrians. Jonah is a book that illustrates God is not just a God who shows grace and mercy to Israel. God is a God who loves the nations. God is a God who extends His mission to redeem beyond the boundaries of the promised land and to the ends of the earth. I think in many ways, then, when you understand that, Jonah becomes a really fitting book to read during the Day of Atonement. Added to that, one other piece of information, when Jesus was pressed for a sign about His work, his coming crucifixion and resurrection, and he fussed at them because they wanted a sign. What did Jesus say? He said, I will give you a sign. I'm only going to give you one because you're a wicked and hard-hearted people, but I will give you a sign. What was the sign that Jesus gave? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Is it not fascinating that of all the Old Testament references Jesus could have brought out because he knew them all, right? He helped write the book, right? Okay, since he knew them all, that of all the references, he picks a disobedient prophet whose story he references is one of judgment, then coming to restoration. It's amazing that Jonah then becomes the story. Of all the prophets that have been in the mouth of Jesus, Jonah is one of them. Though Jonah doesn't present to us as a prophet like any other And I really think then that that Jonah is a fitting book when we talk about the Day of Atonement, to talk about then this greater work of God. And this is what we saw as we kicked it off a few weeks ago, looking at the book of Jonah 
introducing ourselves to its main features, kind of getting our feet wet and trying to understand the significance of this book. In a lot of ways, I think Jonah does something for us that maybe none of the other prophets do, at least not to this degree, because Jonah really does put on display this global mission of God. God never intended for His work to be limited to His people Israel. God never intended for that to be a case. God always intended right from the beginning that the seed of Eve that would crush the head of the serpent would also be of the offspring of Abraham who would be a blessing to the nations. And so this is what's going on here in, in Jonah. I find Jonah also to be a really helpful book because Jonah is a lot like the rest of us. I mean, we read some of these other prophets and we find men, men that, wow, bold, in your face, right? These are the guys we wish we could be, that we could go right in, you know, go right up there to Washington, D.C., and I'll give them what's for, right? We think we would do that, right? We think we could really stand up and be bold and courageous. The truth is, when God calls, you know what we often do? Nope, not going to do it. You can find somebody else, in many ways, kind of like Peter. Peter does a lot of good stuff, then he does a lot of dumb stuff, and we go, oh, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I can identify with Peter. We can identify with Jonah. And so I think we're going to continue to see that as we follow his story. Jonah is going to provide us with an important look then into what it means to be a a faithful servant of God, even in the midst of our tendencies to want to rebel against him. Now, if you look at your notes, we're going to turn now to to Jonah chapter 1 in just one minute. All right, we'll turn to it. But before we do, there's a couple of things, though, that I want to bring up just as a reminder about the study that we kicked off a few weeks ago. Just, just so you, as we're reading through this book, that we keep these reminders in mind. Because here's one of the dangers of a book like Jonah. Its story is so familiar that we lose its meaning. It becomes something we teach to children. And maybe we think about it like morally, right? Like Jonah and his character or lack thereof. Or you know, maybe we talk about these things. Or maybe we talk about the miraculous fish story. What's interesting about Jonah, the fish is not the most important part of the story. The fish is really just a means to an end. In fact, as far as God is probably concerned, it's not that big of a deal. God called everything into existence out of nothing. You think getting a fish to swallow a guy is a big deal? No, this is not, no, chapter 2 is not the centerpiece of the book of Jonah. And so we want to make sure that we're doing Jonah justice, right? We're putting him in his context of the minor prophets and what what the point is. So two reminders here. Number one, that, that Jonah is a focus on God and God's call on Jonah to take the message to Nineveh. When I say it's a focus on God, that's what I I want to make sure that we do. Though we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Jonah, we're going to talk about sailors, we'll talk about a big fish, all right? We're going to talk about Ninevites, we're going to talk about a big giant vine that God makes, all right? So there's a lot of characters and miraculous things. But we do ourselves a service if we force ourselves with every book of the Bible that we read that we read it God-centrically, all right? It's a made-up term, all right? But what I mean is that everything we are thinking about is God. The problem is when we read the Bible, we often start by thinking about ourselves. That's backwards. It does say something to you about you, 
But we've got to begin with a Godward kind of focus. We focus our attention on what the text is saying about Him. What is God saying about Himself? And then on God's call. What God is doing with Jonah. What God is doing with Jonah when He calls him in the first place. And what God's doing with Jonah when Jonah decides to run away. But here's another feature of this book, and it's important to keep in mind. The book of Jonah is an indictment against Israel. Now, at first glance, you may not think that to be the case, but it absolutely is. Why is Jonah a minor prophet? And you all should know this. You should kind of get in the flow of this because we've been talking about the minor prophets. What are all the minor prophets about? Judgment. Okay, judgment. But then we get to Jonah, and it's like, we got a prophet who preaches judgment, but the judgment doesn't come. Instead, we see this work of redemption and forgiveness. What a, and not only that, we see this redemption and forgiveness for a bunch of pagans. Keep in mind, no one in Nineveh ever read the book of Jonah. Jonah is going to be a foreign missionary to Nineveh. That's his call. It's the only one we know of. The only prophet who's given an international assignment that we know of. The other prophets spoke to other nations. Obadiah spoke to Edom, but Obadiah didn't go to Edom. And Edom never read the letter. In other words, these books are intended for God's people. So though it is a book that is about Nineveh and her response, the message is for Israel. And it's an indictment. You say, well, how so? And this is what we'll track as we walk our way through it. Here you have a nation like Israel that is privileged beyond words. They have received God's special revelation for generations, millennia. They've, and they've even had prophet after prophet after prophet who's come to them to shake them out of their sin, to shake them out of their rebellion, to warn them of the consequences of disobeying God. And what has Israel done generation after generation, but blown them off? And not only continued in sin, but the next generation often did it better than the previous one. And what happens when one knucklehead of a prophet goes to Nineveh preaches one message, one time, all of them believe. (laughs) That is a slap in the face of Israel. That's what this book is designed to do. That's part of its point. Israel was to be deeply offended by this. That this is how willing God is to respond to repentance. They're so recalcitrant, hard-hearted, and stiff-necked, they don't get it. But the vilest of people on the planet in their eyes hears the message one time and repent. What does God do? He relents. He forgives. He shows mercy. Now granted, we don't want to lose this. In another generation, God will judge Assyria because this newfound commitment to fearing the Lord won't stick. And God will use them as instruments of judgment, but their their actions will be so vile, God will judge them too. To such a degree... When was the last time you knew anybody who visited modern-day Assyria? Doesn't happen, because it's not there, all right? Now, you could go to Iraq if you wanted for vacation, all right? And a beautiful spot along the Tigris, apparently right across the Tigris from, from Mosul, is where Nineveh would have been, all right? 
I don't know that's where you want to take your, you know, your next anniversary, but maybe, okay, maybe. But no one's vacationing there, right, because God's judgment has come upon it. But I do want you to keep these two points in mind. We'll draw them out as we go. All right, now, let's now turn to the actual text itself and see how much we can get through, which isn't going to be much, all right? We turn to Jonah chapter 1. Before we can get repentance from Nineveh, we got to get a prophet to go there, right? And apparently that's easier said than done. And so Jonah chapter 1 is a story that so our story of Jonah begins with God intervening to correct Jonah's rebellion against God's call. And, and I would suggest, by the way, this is the fundamental focus of the passage. The, the focus is not first on Jonah's call nor on Jonah's rebellion, though we'll talk plenty about both of those. The focus is on God's radical intervention to demonstrate one fundamental truth. It is impossible to thwart the will of God. God will use whatever means at His disposal to ensure that His will is accomplished. He'll even prepare, as the next chapter is going to say, a big fish to do it. So it's really about God intervening. Jonah thinks he can say no to God. It's not going to work that way. And so that's what this is. God intervening to ensure that his message is communicated to the Ninevites. And I think what this will do for us as we work our way through these, this opening chapter, we're going to see how this is what God does do. God does call His people to cooperate with His mission of redemption. It's why we exist. That God is still about the business of declaring His message to the ends of the earth. And we've been assigned that critical task of making disciples of all nations. And it is critical then that we cooperate with this. God is a God who loves the nations. So should we. We should love the nations that are next door, and we should love the nations that are in the darkest places of the world. We should love the nations that are some of the vilest out there. We should love the nations, even the nations who right now would love to do nothing more than destroy this very nation. Say, Pastor, that can't be. There's no way. Hold on. Hold on and see what God expects Israel's reaction to Nineveh to be. You think nations have done ugly things to us? Just wait. And yet what is God's response to this very people? Mercy, grace, love. And so so Jonah is is going to, to, to give this to us. But we've got to be careful because like Jonah, we can reject God's call to be part of this mission. We can attempt to say no. And so what do we learn from this? Well, there's going to be three truths illustrated in this text. Let's let's jump off here with number one. Number one, be on guard against rebellion and hypocrisy. I mean, it's not a profound point. (laughs) Be on guard against rebellion and hypocrisy. Though the focus of the chapter is going to be on God intervening, it begins with a story of rebellion. And, and, and what we love about Jonah, Jonah, unlike me, gets straight to the point, all right? There's not a long introduction. There's no, not a whole lot of buildup here. He's going to get straight to it. Jonah chapter 1, after we have that bit of biography of him, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai. Then, 
then we have the assignment. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. Their wickedness has come up before me. So, so notice two parts here. Jonah hears a word from the Lord. Now, this is a little different, as we've noted. Jonah is not a series of oracles, right? Most of the prophets, like Obadiah or Amos, were given messages that were then to be communicated to whatever religious powers that be. Hosea, that's what all the minor prophets were. This is a story, and it begins, well, with Jonah's call to foreign missions. And there's two parts of the call. That first part, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. That word arise, by the way, it can really be communicated. I read a couple of commentators that suggested it really has a a bit of a a terser, if that's a word, terser tone. It's a bit more punctuated. It's God saying, up. It could literally be rendered as up, go. Like just really simple, to to the point. So it's not like Jonah. Jonah. Like he's sleeping, right? Hey, buddy you get up? Got something I'd like to run by you. Nope, this is God shouting at the man. Get up. Go to Nineveh. So, and God, you can tell by the tone of it, God expects this to be done right now. Right away. Not, let's get some bags packed. Um, this is, this is it. your time's now. Get up and go. We're not going to, this is not three months, six months. You're not going to go around raising support. <laughs> All right, nope, this is it. Arise, go to Nineveh. Notice how he calls it that great city. So Nineveh would have been well-known as a city. By great just means that literally, and perhaps in all kinds of categories. It would have been great in size. Some have estimated anywhere from 600,000 to a million. Some historians have suggested at the time Nineveh was the largest city in the world. It's hard to know because there could have been cities we didn't know anything about that had a lot more people, right? We understand that challenge of ancient history. Nonetheless, it was a massive city. It would have been known politically, militarily, socially, economically. Nineveh was it. Nineveh was the go-to city, uh, especially as far as the Assyrians were concerned. But even in that that empire, it it was a big deal in the known world. And, And, you know, with that came a reputation. And with that then comes, well, a lot of people. So, so God's first call here then is for him to go to this pagan nation. By the way, it's also a nation with quite a bit of history. Does, and let's see, if we, let's see how, what Bible trivia folks we have here. Without looking at your MacArthur study Bible, anybody tell me who founded the city of Nineveh? What's that? Sennacherib? Uh, no, no, it's a Bible. He's mentioned in the, in the Bible well, well before him. And Nimrod, all right, sound, sounds like you're saying something ugly, right? I mean, it sounds like you're, you're saying something ugly about somebody. Nimrod's his name. Anybody know who Nimrod was? He was the grandson of Noah. So if you want to know how old Nineveh is, it was started by the grandson of Noah. So that means by the time we get to Jonah, it's already an ancient city, right? Nineveh's already been around for a few millennia by this point. I mean, that means, so he's the son of Cush, so he's the 
first generation after those who were on the boat to, to then begin to populate the land and establish cities. Of course, some of that was in direct contradiction to God's commands. Uh, he's, he establishes a number of cities, but Nineveh is one of them. So this is a big deal. This is an important city. I mean, I think right, right off the bat, there would have been something in Jonah that would have kind of reacted to God first calling the city a great city. Jerusalem? Yeah, great city. Nineveh? Big, powerful. As far as Jonah was concerned, though, a garbage dump. Not worth Jonah's time, that's for sure. So this first part is this this call to the mission, and then we get the message in the second part, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up against me. Now, we'll learn more about the message when we get to chapter 3 and the actual engagement with Nineveh um, after, you know, after he, you know, Jonah gets his stuff right, okay, and God takes care of him, heart and soul, and then he gets back on mission. And we'll learn that basically what Jonah is called to do is, is cry out judgment upon them. A real simple message. Get right or get burned up. That's it. Gives them a time frame, right? So it's a really simple message. There's not much to it. But, but, but Jonah is to go and to cry out against this city. And then he identifies, so not only is it a great city, but also a wicked one. Their wickedness has come up before me. That reference there shouldn't be taken to mean God was unaware of their wickedness until now and all of a sudden became informed of it. Instead, this is language that means now is the time God has decided to address their wickedness. He's been well aware of their wickedness. And like with Israel, God's been patient with a lot of nations. I mean, we mentioned Noah. God was patient with every generation. God's been patient with every generation. God's always been long-suffering. God's always been slow to anger. Nineveh has been doing nothing God-honoring for 3,000 years. You're concerned about what's happened in our country over the last 50. 3,000 years. This city has done nothing but disobey, dishonor, rebel against God. God has been patient. God has been patient. But now their wickedness has come up before them. So what does that mean? Well, the word wickedness there is a general kind of word for wickedness. It means wickedness of, of all shapes and sizes. Whatever you would associate with being wicked. Heart, thought, action, um, all of it. Say, well, what kind of sins are they engaging in? All of them. All of them. Look at the Ten Commandments and do it backwards. All of them. They're, they're doing, doing all of this. In fact, they were known. Um, I found out a lot about Nineveh that I'm not going to repeat. They were known for a lot of things. They were known for when they, when they came into a country after they had conquered it, they would skin people alive, man, woman, and child. They would bury people up to their necks, pull out their tongues, stake it to the ground, so they died of dehydration over a long period of time and painfully. They were known for inflicting certain kinds 
of actions, I don't need to get into a whole lot of details, against women and children. They were known for it. It wasn't just the one or two of them did. They were known for this. And, ta- and then, then take that along, along with what they were known for in terms of their religion, their, their variety of religion, the religious practices and rituals they followed were, were, were grotesque and sinful. And just if, if you can think it, it's worse than that. I mean, really, Nineveh is, is a city that Sodom and Gomorrah would have looked at and thought, they've gone too far. Sodom and Gomorrah would have blushed at what Nineveh has been doing. Now, I want you to put that in context because this is Jonah's mindset. And not only that, this nation has done that against Israel. Assyria had, had engaged in a number of atrocities over the centuries against Israel. Had taken some of the land. Now, under Jeroboam, the time when Jonah is prophesying, Israel had taken some of it back. I can tell you right now, that of all of the things God may have called Jonah to do, this would literally be the last thing he could have ever conceived would be God's call. Nineveh? Now, you might think, well, Pastor, I mean, the call that God gives is to go cry out against it. You'd think he'd be all over that, right? You'd think, well, this, wow, this is bold. God's picked on this guy to go give this, this message, one of judgment, right? Fire and brimstone coming down. Clearly, that's not the case because notice what happens in verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, you have to hold on to that to next week because you might read that and think, well, that's foolish. All right, I don't know that Jonah's theology has gotten so bad that he actually thinks he can flee from the presence of the Lord. I think this is language that is speaking to him turning down God's call. What he's, what he's doing is he's quitting. Jonah had already been serving as a prophet. We'll see it next week. He'd already been serving. In fact, Jonah was a man of some renown, apparently, and some influence. He had the ear of the king. Could have been a man who was quite wealthy. Uh, had prophesied prosperity for Israel. And so, Jeroboam loved him. But this is him saying, I'm, I quit. <laughs> now, if we could right quick, Scott, uh, could, you, could you look at the, where I have the map? Just so you get a feel for it. I don't think it was the next slide, but just so you can get the feel for it. So here's what God has called Jonah to do. He wants Jonah to go about 550 miles northeast to Nineveh. Tarshish is literally as far west as you can go. That's as far as they went, right? That's Spain. It's 2,500 miles the other direction. If, if you ever wanted to communicate something to God, that's how you do it. If you want to tell God no, that's it. I, I've always found it interesting that some I, who I hear talk about Jonah, they call Jonah the reluctant prophet. That's not reluctant. Reluctance like, you know, you giving me a, a, something to do and I go, um, I don't know, let me think about it. I'll, I'll pray. I don't, that's not really sound like my thing, but I'll, 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 I'll think through. That's reluctant. This is flat out rebellion and rejection, all right? This is Jonah saying, not over a period of time, not God, let's work on terms. This is given to us in a very quick 
kind of fashion, and I think that's intentional. I think God gives him this one message, arise, get up. And so what does Jonah do? He arose right then. He arose and got up. And notice what happens. He goes down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare. In other words, he was able to get on the boat, which by the way, this is an important, we'll stop here with this, all right, and we'll have to continue on next week with everything else. Jonah's a good reminder to us, be careful reading something in to circumstances lining up the way you want them to, because it may not be a sign of anything. I'm not saying it can't be, I just mean this lines up for Jonah, right? He goes down to the dock, he happens to find a ship that's going as far west as is humanly known at the time, and he's able to pay the fare, and they're going to take him on. In fact, he can go down, he's got a spot down the very bottom of the boat. Everything lines up. Wow, this is, this, this, this is providential, right? No. Just make sure that you're not allowing your interpretation of your circumstances to trump God's clear word. Circumstances are not a great indicator of what God may or may not be doing, all right? Jonah reminds us of this. So, so here, this is where we're going to leave Jonah. We're going to leave Jonah on his way, all right? On his way to Tarshish. Hold on to this uh, outline. We'll, we'll pick it up again next week as we draw out some of the other points, uh, and we, we'll find this man trying to flee, trying to say no to God, um, we're going to find out you, you're, you can't say no to God. I mean, you can't disobey God. That doesn't mean you have a right to do it, all right? And we're going to find out God's going to go to extreme measures to bring Jonah back in to faithfulness to him. All right, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you again for the gathering of your people. We thank you for your word. And God, we do pray that you'd give us understanding. We want to see... Uh, how, how you are at work in this world, how we can participate with that work. We don't want to be Jonah. We don't want to run from it. We, we want to engage. We want to commit. And so, Father, as we study this book, may we be sensitive to the ways in which you want us to engage with the world around us. Keep us from how the ease with which we say no to what you have clearly commanded of us. And God, may we embrace all that you expect, that we might be a people that glorify you, and, and express your love for the nations to the ends of the earth. I thank you for these who've come, the willingness to be a part of this time of prayer and study together. I pray they would know your blessing. Grant each and every one of them wisdom as they seek to fulfill your call on their lives. And may they do so in a way that glorifies you. And we ask, Father, that you would then gather your people back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.